What did you eat for breakfast? Oh, well, I haven't had official breakfast yet. It's 11 o'clock. My baby woke up at 4.30 this morning. So around 5.15, I had a cliff bar. And then I had like three cups of coffee. And then I crashed and took a nap. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 141. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. In this episode, I talk to Steph Belcher, owner of When Songs Mean Business, that teaches independent musicians how to manage their finances and formulate a plan for their business. Steph talks about a few different tax filing statuses that artists might have to think about when claiming both income and expenses across several years, as well as some different categories of partnerships a musician might encounter when working with co-writers and producers. Finally, we talk about the role that music has played in Steph's life from growing up in a musical family, including her grandmother, that was a professional pianist, writing CD reviews in a local newspaper in her teens, which led to indie music promotion for an early streaming tech company, and also what music has meant to her surrounding life events such as losing her dad to cancer, her wedding, and her children. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Okay, so welcome to another episode. Today, I'm joined by Steph Belcher, who runs When Songs Mean Business, and we'll we'll get into that and do a deep dive, but welcome, and how are you? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I am doing really well today. Everything, you know, it's a beautiful day here in Michigan, and I'm looking forward to a nice, relaxing Sunday. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind just telling listeners, you know, what your business is and, you know, what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. I started in the industry doing marketing, mostly grassroots projects and concert promotion for venues. And as I got further along in my career, we when we hit the 2009 recession, that lifestyle became really unsustainable for me. So even though I had about 10 years of marketing experience under my belt at that point, I needed to find a day job. And I just sort of happenstance ended up at a tax prep agency, which I never in a million years expected. It was so far out of my comfort zone and my wheelhouse to be ask, answering the phones and 
you know, having people ask me questions about their tax liabilities and getting 1099s. And I ended up discovering that I really liked it. It took a couple seasons for me to get settled into it because it, it can be a really high stress environment. But I ended up staying in tax for 10 years. Mm. So by the end of it, I was doing taxes exclusively for musicians, small business musicians. I, I had clients who were in bands. In, uh, I had a couple of clients who were agents and ran their own agencies. So I was doing their bookkeeping and helping them with their tax returns. And that was uh, particularly complicated bookkeeping because you're taking in deposits from all their artists and having to pay out after commissions. So that was interesting, really interesting. And I was also helping people because I had that marketing background. I was also helping people with their business planning and their marketing strategy during the off season. Mm-hmm. So my current business is kind of a conglomeration of all those experiences meshed into one because I found that there are a lot of entry-level musicians or like emerging artists, baby bands, as some people call them, who just don't know that they are in business. Mm-hmm. They, they don't know that they're professional until they're getting 1099. And by the time they're getting 1099, it's usually a year or two or sometimes three years after they've spent all that money. And so it can get to be a really complicated tax situation. So my current job is running when songs mean business. I'm trying to educate people and be a coach for people who are just starting out in the industry so that they know how to manage their finances and manage their businesses right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that they don't have any big financial problems kind of weighing over them as they start to launch into hopefully stardom or, you know, whatever kind of success they want. That's what I'm doing at the moment. Fantastic. Yeah. And I know this is a, a subject that people really avoid. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I'm the type, I'm a nerdy type of person. I really love numbers. I do our taxes, you know, with the help of TurboTax. So sure. I'm semi familiar. I, I haven't dived too deep into it, but I, I do some teaching guitar, you know, teach guitar and also some graphic design on the side. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm, fam- I'm familiar with the self employment kind of arena yeah and i i get a kick out of it i i I kind of enjoy it but i know there's a lot of people that just like "Eh, i don't want to deal with it and just like but there's there's a lot you can do with your deductions and and running it as a self-employment or a a business is is super important because all those you know as a musician our equipment is super expensive so all that is you know if, if it's a hobby then it's just money you're you're paying out. But if it's treated as a business, all that expenses can be at least partially, you know, deducted and it's it's yeah. actually your your bread and butter stuff that you're making money with. So Yeah. It's interesting that you said that it's something that a lot of people avoid because I've I found that in tax, you know, as as the person who answered the phones, I was kind of like the office therapist. Yeah. Because I'm picking up the phone and people are saying Hi, I need to make an appointment because here's my life story. And here's the reason why I haven't filed in the last four years. And my husband left me and we foreclosed on our house and I need help. Mm -hmm. And so then it was my job to kind of not only make the appointment, but also ease their mind and let them know that, you know, a, a lot of people go through this. It's fairly common. The IRS has systems and processes to help deal with this and it's going to be okay. But we had a joke in the office that uh, seeing a tax preparer is kind of like seeing a dentist. There's two kinds of people in the world. Mm -hmm. There's the people who go to the dentist every six months and get their teeth cleaned and identify problems early. And they're very proactive about it. And then there's people who don't go to the dentist until they're in pain. Mm -hmm. And if you are not seeing a tax preparer until you're in pain, you're definitely losing money. Mm -hmm. You're definitely paying the IRS more than you're supposed to, than you're legally required to. And that's really what it comes down to is the IRS has all these rules and stipulations that say you do not have to pay them more than you're legally obligated to pay them. Mm -hmm. And If you're paying more than that, it's because you broke a rule or broke a law or you're not doing your taxes properly. 
And, you know, I don't, it's not like a scary thing. I don't think the IRS is scary. Mm. I've been dealing with them now since 2009. And, and I, if there's anything I'd like people to take away from this interview, it's that the IRS is not scary. It's just, it's just people trying to enforce rules. But if you don't know what those rules are, it can feel really intimidating. It can feel really heavy and weighted. So I, you know, I, when I'm working with somebody closely on their bookkeeping tax finance situation, I like to have meetings with them every six months, mm. just like a checkup. And I, you know, I get a kick out of it just like you do. It's really the kind of thing where if you're not thinking about your taxes until April of the following year, then you're losing money without a doubt. For sure. So let's dig into your past a little bit. What what got you into the music space in 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 the first place and you know do do you play an instrument i tried to play every instrument okay <laughs> i was a very musical child mm-hmm. i took piano and i was in choir and i dabbled with the guitar a little bit but none of them really i couldn't really ever make my body work properly like even now I'm almost 40 and I have this piano behind me, but I really struggle with making my left hand do things that are different than my right hand. Mm-hmm. And so practicing got really frustrating for me as a child. And I come from a really musical family. That was actually my great grandma's piano. It's from 1930. Wow. And uh, yeah, yes. She she was like a concert pianist in New York City and, and in New Jersey. And she ran a community theater. And then on my dad's side of the family, we have five generations of music teachers. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they they had this big Hungarian Catholic band. I have these funny pictures of all my uncles with their like stone faces, like holding their drum and their like, you know, their violin and their tuba. But my, I have a, this great picture of my, my grandma, my grandpa, and one of my aunts holding a violin, a banjo, and a guitar, I think, or something. So, you know, I music, I've always been into music. I didn't know exactly what road it was going to take me down. And then in high school, I started writing for a local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Full disclosure, it was total nepotism. <laughs> My mom was the editor. Okay. And so she would get CDs in the mail. And the CDs back in like, this is in the late 90s. The only way that you heard about what was going on in the community was through the local newspaper. So if somebody from the high school who, or a recent graduate was doing something cool out in LA, you had to hope that they're, they sent you a press release mm. and a copy of the CD, right? So I would get these cool CDs in the mail that were like the bass player or the trumpet player had gone to the local high school. And then my mom would hand me the CD and say, write a review about the CD. And if it's really good, I want you to call the bass player and interview him for like a So that's how I started. And I was like 15 when I started doing that, 16. And I did that for my school newspaper as well. I covered this event called the High School Rock Off Mm -hmm. in Cleveland, which now happens at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. It's a kind of a big deal now. But at the time, it happened at like the Grungy Club in the Flats. And there were, our high school had two bands in the finals. So we got to cover that. And that, I got, I got bit. You know, I got the bug at that point and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. So when I applied to college, all of my college applications were about how I wanted to be the next writer. I wanted to be the next Cameron Crowe, you know, do all the interviews and write for Rolling Stone. And the actual journalism degree is not music writing. So uh, in college, I started booking shows through the local... Through, through local venues and through the concerts committee that happened on campus. And that's what got me into the concert space. Mm-hmm. So once I was in the concert space, I stayed there for a really, really long time. I really, I, I still consider myself to be in the live music arena. You know, I, I'm doing the bookkeeping and the tax returns that I do are generally for the live music space, more so than like recorded music or I'm not an expert in royalties, even though I do put a lot of them on tax returns. Mm. It's it's kind of that concert area that I focus on. Awesome. And then 
you worked for a little bit for a, an original like digital distributor uh, distribution company. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yes, that was a really great job. That was super random. I was living in Denver at the time and I wanted I needed to move to Chicago. So I applied to basically every music job that was on Craigslist. This was in 2006. And I applied for every music job, every internship. And I applied for an internship for, it said it was a music marketing company. And I didn't really know anything about it. And the, the woman called me and said, we're actually looking for a marketing director. And I think that with your experience, you would be a better fit for that. And she ended up telling me that they had a flat link website. Do you remember um, when you would just right click on a blue link? And you would go to save as, mm -hmm. and then it would download a zip file and you would get a whole discography. Absolutely. So that was the kind of website that this was. And then they had a streaming player built in. Mm -hmm. So you could listen to the music before you downloaded it, but there were no, there was no social aspect. There were no profiles or anything like that. It was just a list of bands and you could download their whole discography. And the subscription rate was that for that was only $4.99, but this was in 2006 and iTunes had a made had a lock on all the major label mm. releases. So we couldn't get anybody that was in a major label contract. So from a marketing standpoint, that meant that we were going specifically toward like indie bands and college bands. So at the time, our biggest artists were Zach Brown band who wasn't huge at the time, wasn't signed to a major label. Mm -hmm. They ended up signing while I was there. And we had to pull everything down. And then Stephen Kellogg and the Sixers mm -hmm. and Kate Vogel. And then a few, a, a lot of local bands that were big at their local colleges. So my job as the marketing director was to develop a street team of college reps that lived on these campuses mm -hmm. that would promote the website and the uh, concerts when the bands would come through town. So I was constantly mailing posters out to these these reps and saying like, Stephen Kellogg is playing at your school in Vermont on Wednesday night, hang these posters up and get people to listen to the music ahead of time on our website. It was called Fresh Tracks Music. Mm -hmm. So get people to listen to Stephen Kellogg on Fresh Tracks and then you'll, you'll get two tickets to the show in exchange for that. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And in the in that time, the website was redesigned to be a social platform with profiles and you can make playlists. But there was like a coding error, like a deep, very deep coding error. And so every time people would log out, they would lose everything. Oh, wow. So they, yeah, it was um, very unfortunate. And the company ended up losing their investor seed and closing and... I ended up getting laid off. I got laid off a month before my dad passed away. Oh, so I did that. So that was like a major life shift for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just collecting unemployment, grieving, grieving my dad. And in the aftermath of that, I realized that, you know, the, the tech life probably isn't for me because I was uh, really let down by the coding problems. Mm -hmm. That was challenging for me. I have a hard time when technology doesn't work properly. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I get a lot of frustration of why isn't this working? But that's that's unfortunate. Yeah. So if you don't mind, let's let's dig into like talking about you know, the importance of having a business plan for, as a musician. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's it's really like a tenfold question in my mind. <laughs> If you were starting a business in any other industry, you wouldn't think twice about having a business plan. Right. It's, just, it's essential. And in music, people tend to make the art, put it out there, it gets well received, and then they realize they're in business. Mm -hmm. So we're backing into, oh, wait, what do I want to do with this music? And that, I, I understand it. I completely get it. But at the same time, that makes it's difficult to actually like market and sell mm. at the time. And I think, you know, the suits, the suits in the offices get a, a bad rap because they're always thinking about how your music's going to sell. And 
I don't want it to be like that, especially not for young emerging artists or people who are just trying to get back into it after a break. You know, I want I want there to be that joy and that passion. And I I feel bad when people are jaded mm. by the industry. I would like to be like the antithesis to that. But putting a little bit of thought into how you're going to market your music is not necessarily a bad thing if you want to do it professionally. Right. If you really, really want this to be your career and you, you know, you want to be you want to retire from doing music, then it doesn't hurt to think about the end game. You know, what are you going to do in the next 25 years? Are you going to retire from this? What kind of a legacy do you want to leave? Who's going to inherit your songwriting credits? Mm. You know, stuff like that. So the plan that I ended up creating, which is I put put it together in a workbook that people can download from my website. The workbook, it takes takes you through the planning phase, which has your vision and your skill set. You know, it helps you identify what you do really, really well. And then it leads you into your goals. You know, how how do you picture this ending? What is your life going to look like in the next 10, 15, 25 years? And then it helps you set up your actual business structure in alignment with those goals. Mm. Because there's, you know, there are people, one thing that I found in taxes is that people get into business relationships without really knowing that they're in a business relationship. So if you're writing songs with somebody or you're in a band, are you in a partnership or are you two sole proprietors who are working together who have to then figure out who's going to get the 1099? Mm -hmm. Who's going to pay the other person? Are you going to then 1099 that other person or are you a partnership with a unique business entity and then you're splitting it and is it 50-50? Or is it 60-40, 70-30? You know, how is it actually split? And this is a lot of time people don't think about this stuff until they've already gotten the 1099. Mm -hmm. At that point, it's too late to make any changes to it. So if you don't want, you know, depending on what you want out of your life, then um, you got to think about this stuff ahead of time. For sure. So the second section is like organizing the business and actually like, laying out the logistical structure. What kind of a LLC are you going to have? Single member or multi-member? How are you going to file your taxes? Are you on a partnership? Are you on a Schedule C? You know, there's a lot of business um, tech companies, marketing, uh, I'm sorry, music tech companies that want investors and they want to sell it further down the line or they want to go public and share stock, uh, sell shares and sell stocks. So do you want to start off as a C corporation and have those stocks available right from the get-go? Or do you want to dip your toes into business ownership for a little while and then switch it up? You know, are you bringing people in, in and out of your band on a regular basis? Do you want them to be owners? Should you be an S corporation where people can buy in and out and you all get paid as partners? There's all these different options. But first, before you can arrange all of that, you have to think about what your goals are. Mm. You know, you're, you're going to, if you're like, I'm in, a, I consider partnerships a business marriage because you can't just get out of them. You have to dissolve the whole thing. Mm. So if you're getting into a marriage with your co-writer or your guitar player, you know, how long is that marriage really going to last? And if it's long-term, then that's fantastic. Let's do it as a partnership, you know, but you, we need to kind of see that end game even to know how we're going to do it. And so that's the second phase of the business is setting up all that stuff, making sure we have the right insurances, making sure that we have all the right paperwork on files so that when a venue asks you for a W-9 or some kind of tax form, you already have it. It's already on your Google Drive. You can just send it right over. You're not scrambling to pull that together. So after we set up the business and get everything functional, well, there's one more piece to it, and that's accepting the money, mm -hmm. having a bank account or having some kind of like payment processor. Because there's a lot of young people that consider themselves unbanked. 
and they use Cash App or PayPal. PayPal is technically a checking account, but you know they use Cash App or they're like, oh, the music industry is a cash business, so I don't really need to worry about having an actual bank account. But that's not really how it works anymore. We're in like a digital currency world. So what I found was a lot of people would come to me in the off season of doing taxes and say, I want help with marketing. And I want to do a Kickstarter, for example, ready to do a Kickstarter. I think I need about 25 grand. Mm -hmm. And I would say, okay, cool. Where's the money going to go? What checking account are you literally depositing this $25,000 into? And they would say, oh, my, my personal checking account. And it's like that causes problems with the IRS a lot of times if you're putting business money into a personal checking account. So thinking about all those logistical details helps to clear up your mind and free the roadblocks for actually having a successful Kickstarter campaign. Because when you know all that stuff going into it, it's not festering around in there. Am I doing this right? Am I going to get taxed on this? You know, how much am I going to get taxed? And it causes all these problems where it ends up making people afraid to actually make money. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of problems that I want to solve. And I put together this workbook with the end goal of having a marketing plan when you get out of it. That's the point of the book is to have like a guidebook mm-hmm. that ends with marketing strategy. But then the whole guidebook, you can share it with your team. You could show it to a manager. You could show it to an agent, show it to a publicist. It says, this is what my vision is. This is what I'm good at. These are my goals. This is how my business is organized. Here's proof that I've done all the hard work, all the logistical work. So you don't have to do any of that for me. You know, no manager wants to come in and have to like back into all these business problems, right? And then here's how I tell my story. Here's what my super fans look like. Here's my target market. And here's some content ideas. And now I need your help to execute these contact I- content ideas so that I can go make music. That's fantastic. Yeah, that that's really good information. What would you say, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but what would you say the generally a genre, the, the best genres that kind of are clued in versus the worst genres, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. More so than genres, because I think it can kind of vary based on the style of music that they're making. But producers tend to be business people Mm -hmm. in my mind. Mm -hmm. So if you're making music for other people, you know in the back of your head that it's a business. Mm -hmm. You're not making music for other people because it's fun and you're just jamming with your friends. You're like, I bought studio gear. I am making these beats and I'm selling them and I want to make money off of it. So producers are some of my favorite people to work with because they they tend to be more ready to use a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, they're they're not quite as worried about the numbers part of it. They're a little bit more analytical, kind of mathy. The one the people that I found that want nothing to do with this stuff is like straight vocalists. If you're just singing, if you were just born with an absolutely gorgeous voice and you can just walk through the grocery store and people would drop money at your feet while you're singing, then you're like, I don't know what to do. They're like, I'm, I I was just gifted this voice and now am I supposed to make money off of it? Because it's like the only thing I'm really good at. And what do I do? And then there's this range kind of in between where, you know, the more creative, I don't work with a lot of jazz guitarists Mm -hmm. because they kind of like are in their own stratosphere (laughs) as far as like emailing back and, you know, like following through and doing stuff like that. Like they reach out, you know, I, I get a lot of jazz guitarists who are like, I need help. And then I never hear from them again. Drummers tend to be very analytical. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, drummers tend I, I do have a lot of business business minded drummers mm-hmm. in my repertoire of clients. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's there's definitely different mindset mindsetted people. 
mm-hmm. on different instruments. I mean, yeah, drummers makes total sense because they're the one counting. They're using all their appendages, which makes them. I mean, if you you know, if you look at this is a total te- you know nerdy tangent, but an octopus has a massive brain because it has so many appendages that have to work together. So, you know, a drummer has to have independent movements on each thing, so that kind of increases the amount of uh, neural pathways that they develop. So that's a whole rabbit hole. Interesting. My husband's actually a drummer. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's why it's another reason why if if you take music in high school or in, in school in general in this country, they f- tell you to tap your foot to the beat. And what and it's I don't think this is actually put forward to the students, but it's something I teach as a guitar teacher. Uh-huh. Is that that movement with your foot is another avenue that your brain is actually paying attention to. So if you're just playing with your your arms and you're not moving any other part of your body your brain doesn't develop these neural pathways to actually become its own metronome in a way but when you use a a foot you know it's another area of your body your brain has to pay attention to so you're you're developing this neural pathway that actually helps you keep in time and that you know definitely helps you in the business world because yeah you're, you're you're making these pathways in your brain that that help you analyze stuff. Yeah, that's super interesting. I don't want to go too 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 far down that rabbit hole, but you could be there for an hour. Yeah, no, I I would I would agree with with that as far as the the amount of things that a drummer can pay attention to mm. in in the music and in the business is very wide. They tend to have very wide interests. Mm. And I, I, I really like working with drummers. I mean, I like working with everybody. I, you know, I wouldn't pick one, one type of, you know, instrumentalist over another, but there are definitely types of people who call me mm-hmm. more often than other types of people. Let's just uh, throw a quick, uh, you know, real world example. Yeah. Just, just to see, I've had this idea for a few, you know, a few months I don't know if this is an experience you've had, but it's it's a little left to center. So I'm really into equipment and amps and stuff. I, I love watching the YouTube videos. So if if I set up a business working so that people, and this is more in the producer realm than the artist realm, but if if I'm reamping, I don't know if, if you're familiar with that, but it's basically when someone takes a guitar track that's that has no effects or no amps on it it's just clean direct okay and then i take that file and i can run it through different amps to get different sounds so that they can mix it into their mix which basically leaves them to record the the take and not have to worry about the sound in the mix at the time and then i basically add the amp and the effects and everything and then send it back and they can mix it like sure how would you go about setting that up as a business? Sure. Well, I think that would closely mirror a production business. Mm-hmm. So you would you would be a type of producer. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you would be like a technical guitar producer in a way. So would you, my, my first question would be, would you expect to have any kind of songwriting credit because you are influencing the way that the song sounds or are they the entire creative muscle behind it and you are simply an engineer? Good question. So generally speaking, I would say if someone came to me and said, I want to get something close to the sound of the guitar on this record by this artist right okay then i would just basically listen to that and kind of change the amp settings and and give them a few different takes like which one works in that instance i'd say yeah there's no this is all just them there's no creative input but if they came to me and said here's here's the general mix as reference can you be creative with it like with some effects and then then i'd say yeah, maybe there's maybe there's some like from a producer standpoint, maybe there's some creative in, input. So yeah, you know, we're not talking about like oh, I want fifty fifty, but maybe there's a right. a small percentage that yes, I'm attributing my creativity to the track. So, sure. 
Let's go with the first option just to make it simple. Okay. So yeah, so if you are an engineer, then you're doing it as a work for hire. Mm-hmm. And you would you would give them a work for hire contract or they would give you one, which, you know, it could go either way. And you would say for this flat fee, I'm going to perform this service. And you would write it out just like you just said, you know, this is what we talked about. This is what I'm going to give to you. I can give you this many revisions for the rate. Otherwise, it'll be this much per hour. You know, if we go beyond the expectations because you want to be super aware of scope creep, Mm -hmm. that's how a lot of people lose a ton of time. And then you would just get paid. You would just get paid cash from the clients or, you know, not cash, but check, Mm -hmm. Venmo, PayPal. It's all taxable. Venmo, PayPal, it's all taxable. And then you would claim that as service income. So there's, there, it's funny when people talk about the music industry, because from a tax preparer standpoint, there's actually four industries in the music business. Mm-hmm. One of them is service-based, which means that you have to be physically present mm. in order for the work to happen. You are the service provider. And that is like 80% of the music business. Because you're on stage, you're tuning the guitars, you're doing the production. So that, in this case, that would be a service-based industry. Mm-hmm. And you would get a 1099 for it and you would claim it on your self-employment income. But then if you wanted to get the other three industries in the music business are royalties. Royalties are considered capital, pay, capital gains on an asset. Okay. So when you write a song that's actually a piece of intellectual property mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. every time you license that song you are receiving royalties in exchange for the use of the license and so if you are a passive songwriter like i have one client who's a nurse she's a full-time nurse all day long every day but then some weekends and on her breaks she writes songs with a band who has like 20 million monthly listeners on Spotify. Okay. So she's getting royalty checks, Mm. but she is not a musician by trade. She just writes songs every once in a while as a hobby. And so that is passive income for her. And that goes on the royalty section of her tax return. And so that's a completely different income stream from the service-based industry. And then the other two are teaching And teaching can be on a W-2 if you work for a school. It could be on a self-employment form, but it would be a different self-employment form than your service-based one. And then there's merchandise, which is considered also considered an asset. And when you are messing around with merchandise, then you have to focus on cost of goods sold. Mm -hmm. So all of these things mean that you're going to have like four, at least four different income streams for one music job. And in the case of that, this music job that we're talking about right here, that would go primarily on a Schedule C in the service-based industry. And then if you started to mess around with royalties, you could put those royalties on your same Schedule C and subject them to self-employment tax. So you're paying into your own Social Security and you're paying Medicare, but that gets a little bit more complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Let's see, let's let's move on to the non-quick fire question round. Sure. What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did that teach you? Oh, well, my dad died. That was a pretty significant negative experience. And what was a real bummer about my dad dying was that my grandparents had also just died. Mm. And they were so it was I only had the two grandparents left. And my dad had cancer. And so while he was going through cancer, I was really struggling and, uh, you know, I was grieving him before he was actually gone. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I had to overcome was not grieving things while they're still there. I, you know, I wish I had spent those last two years hanging out with my dad instead of being sad about the fact that he was going to die. And then while he had cancer, both my grandparents died really suddenly. My grandpa just had like a heart heart problem 
And then my, I'm pretty sure my grandma died of a broken heart a month later. And, um, so I felt like my whole world fell apart all at once. You know, I saw my mom, I saw my sister and my aunt, but like, you know, uh, it's like a line from Hamilton, like, um, how do I keep going when everybody who loves me has died? And I, it was hard. It was really hard. But what I uh, ended up doing to get over it was going to therapy. I, I went to several different rounds of therapy with different people, different goals in mind. And I had to really train my brain to be in the moment that I'm in all the time. And, um, a lot of that required me to get sober. So I quit drinking alcohol. Uh, that, it, that one took me a while, but I, I quit drinking alcohol and started taking care of my body and, you know, allowing my brain when anxiety comes up, it's there for a reason. Mm. You know, if you're really, really worried about something, it's your body's way of saying that something's not quite right. And if you just keep numbing it and turning it off, it's never going to go away. Mm. The only way, the only way out is through. So once I quit drinking, then I was able to kind of identify this tendency that I had to always look to the dark side of something that's going to happen. It's like Luke Skywalker effect. But I was like always ready for the other shoe to drop. And I had to do a lot of meditating and a lot of brain training. It was really, it really felt like strenuous training to be in this moment. This is the only moment that really matters. And, you know, when I was like grieving my dad, like right after he died, somebody told me to take life one hour at a time. And I still do that just on good days, you know, like what do I have to do between now and noon, you know? And, um, <laughs> my dog, I'm sorry about my dog. He's so noisy and anxious, but he, uh, but yeah. So, you know, my dad. All right. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. What major positive experience has given you the push to follow this journey? Oh, that's a good question. Teaching has been a really positive experience for me. Being in a classroom with students is just wonderful. I I love to see the look of ease on their face when they realize that they're not going to go to jail if they make a tax mistake. Mm. You know, that's like a big common common myth is that if you make a mistake on your taxes, you're going to jail. That's not true. If you if unless you have criminal intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, just the the relief that comes over people's faces when they figure out that that they can actually do this, that keeps me going. I love helping people. That's awesome. Yeah, I've actually I actually made a, a mistake on a tax one year, and de- I I think I declared a deduction twice somehow because I know what it oh. was. I was using I was using TurboTax for the longest time, and then I switched to a different provider and i wasn't sure of the layout and something appeared twice in two sections and uh-huh. it was like an uh i got more back than i should have done and okay. then yeah it was like oh oh crap i made a mistake there and i went through it again and i just filed an amendment you know yeah it, it wasn't really a big deal i just yeah. redid it and then i ended yeah. up having to pay a certain amount back and yeah whatever yeah it's so like the the IRS got got a bad reputation in like the 70s and the 80s when there was like a lot of organized crime going on and a lot of like the world was kind of more hardlined I think than it is now but then in the late 90s and early 2000s everything got started to be done by computers and so now it's really a matter of of computers cross-checking what the IRS has received on you versus what you filed. Mm-hmm. So if they received information on you that you're not putting on your tax return, then you're going to get a letter and they're going to say, Hey, what, why didn't you claim this money? You were supposed to claim this money and you owe us money now. But sometimes the computers are wrong. Like I actually got a letter one time that said, um, you owe us three grand 
because your 1099 from this company you worked for says $10,000, but you only claimed 1200. But I only made 1200. And I had bank statements to back it up. And I had my copy of the 1099 said 1200. And so all I had to do was make a copy of my 1099 and make a copy of the letter and my tax return and mail it back to them. And I said, no, it wasn't 10 grand. I don't know what happened. I don't know why you think that, but it you're wrong. And they were like, oops, sorry. <laughs> you don't know anything. Our bad, you know, and it, it was like really easy. That's great. What what are some resources that people can go look up these terms and and is there like a a cheat sheet for the gen, like the generalized terms we've talked about that you could kind of point someone to? Sure. Yeah. Well, I have one. I have on my website. I have I have two different forms that you can download for free. I have a tax deduction checklist mm-hmm. that has everything that's generally deductible as an expense on your tax return. And then a a second one that lists everything that you need to take to your tax appointment. And I have a workshop coming up in December that outlines exactly what's on your 1040. And it'll walk you right through the whole form and explain everything. And I'm going to make that free. Awesome. So that'll be, yeah, that'll be available on stephbelcher.com. You know, the, so music and tax is something that is relatively new. You know, it's weird to say that. Okay, music and tax, no. People have been paying tax on their music careers for a very long time. But it really did used to be a cash industry up until about 2015 when PayPal and other digital currency systems became really ubiquitous and also when crowdfunding became a thing mm-hmm. and when Spotify and, and mechanical royalties became a thing before that, you really had to be signed in order to be making any money that you would get 1099 for. And you're, if you're signed, you got a manager and a business manager came along with the deal, but that's not that pathway has been severed. Mm-hmm. And so now we have people going direct to their fans and making, you know, a successful musician can make 60, 70 grand a year between touring, Kickstarters, di- you know, digital royalties, and all of that is digital money and it's all being tracked. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a lot of information out there. There are other people who are writing about it. There's a website that I like called um, musiccpa.com. And I don't know him personally, but he's in Austin, Texas. I refer back to that website sometimes when people have questions that I don't know the answers to. So there are other people who are like operating in this kind of like independent music tax space, but it's there aren't that many. So I'm hoping to be the source for all this information. One day during quarantine, I was bored. So I read the entire IRS audit guide. There's like a guide for auditors. Mm-hmm. It's like how to audit somebody who's in the entertainment business. And I read the whole thing and, you know, I didn't really, it didn't really teach me anything I didn't already know, but it was cool to read it mm-hmm. from their perspective. Right. Awesome. What is one piece of advice that you'd give from a tax perspective for our, or like what, what is one thing that, that really stands out to you as one thing that people do wrong or one really, really important piece of information? Yes, this is, I really think this is like the cornerstone of what I teach and what I am trying to get across to people is that if you're spending money on music with the intention of making a profit, you are in business. So when you're recording a record and spending 15 or 20 grand over the course of a year or two on contractors and studio time and presses and a publicist and merchandise, we know you're not going to be making money from that for at least another year after it comes out just because of the royalty cycle and the way that it all works. But if you don't claim those expenses in the beginning, you lose, you lose them. You have to claim expenses in the year that you spent them. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to capitalize them so that you're rolling them forward 
for a few years to offset your profits. But if you don't take them right away from the beginning, you're, they're gone. So I've had clients who spent a bunch of money to record songs that they just kind of assumed weren't going to do anything. And then three years later or four years later, they get picked up for a sync license or they get remixed or something random happens mm. and they end up making money off of it. And they're like, oh, I have to claim this whole thing, but I spent a bunch of money on this four years ago. And it's like, well, you should have claimed that. You didn't, you couldn't, right? you know, and people don't know that they, they think that it's a hobby at the time and then it becomes a business later and then the expenses are gone. And that is an unfortunate situation that I've come upon often, quite often. So I, w I really want people to know that their tax situation is you can claim what you spend in the year that you spent it only. And if you don't claim it in that year, it's gone. So put some thought into whether or not you're really in business for the long term to make a profit. And if you are, file your taxes accurately in that year. Fantastic. All right. Last question is, what does music mean to you? Oh, joy. All feelings. Of music is so closely tied to my emotions. When my dad died, now there's this whole like list of songs that that make me think of him every single time I hear them. Mm -hmm. And there's songs for my wedding and songs for my children and songs for my mom. And, you know, it's it's all so closely linked to the way that I feel mm -hmm. about cer certain situations. I notice that if I if I haven't listened to any dance music in a while and like really, you know, gone dancing, like gone clubbing then there's like this element of like joy and happiness that I'm missing in my life. So I'll throw on some like deep house music in my living room and make my windows rattle mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and go club into my own living room. But it's mu music is like, it's like the heartbeat of my life. Really. It drives all my emotions. All right. Fantastic. Since, when, since we've heard him, what's your dog's name? Oh, Chuck. His name is Chucky. Awesome. Charles. It used to be Charles. He went downstairs actually now. Oh, okay. What what breed? Uh, uh, he's part Ridgeback and part Doberman. Okay. So he kind of looks a little bit like a lab, mm. um, but the rest of his litter was all Dobermans. Uh, I would show him to you. Chucky, come here. Chucky, come here, buddy. He's coming. <laughs> How old is he? He's 13. Oh, wow. Come here, Chucky. Come here, say hi. There he is. Oh, yeah. He look. He looks a little like our, our dog that we that passed away a couple of years ago. He was almost fourteen. Oh yeah, Jake. So yeah, yeah. He gets confused when his pack is gone. So dad and his sisters aren't here right now, and he's like mm. wandering around looking for them. Awesome. If people want to get in touch and find out all about you know your business and everything, and, and download the free free worksheet, uh, where can they go? Yes. StephBelcher.com. S-T-E-P-H-B-E-L-C-H-E-R. And I'm, you know, keeping everything there. The I'm hoping to start a podcast soon. Awesome. It'll be called When Songs Mean Business. And we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk to songwriters about their writing process and how, you know, business struggles that they've come upon. Mm -hmm. So keep an eye out for that. And then I started a group called the Musicians Money Collective that helps that helps musicians, songwriters, producers, managers, and agents monthly with their bookkeeping. Is that something that I found? A lot of people want to be hands-on and DIY with their money. They don't want to turn it over to somebody else. They know, you know, pretty much everybody knows that's an option, but it's not really feasible and it's not really something that People don't have that like trust level mm -hmm. for handing over all their finances to some random person. So I teach them how to do it in real time in Zoom workshops. Awesome. So, you know, we get on together and I'm like, okay, let's open up our bank account statements and let's open up our expense spreadsheets and let's reconcile everything, make sure that everything that got spent was supposed to get spent. And, um, you know, let's set some goals and, 
solve some problems. So that's called the Musicians Money Collective. And there's information available on my website under the tab, the MMC. Yeah, that's for people who are looking for like a bookkeeping solution in their monthly in their in the, their monthly financial routine. Awesome. Yeah, and I'll link all this stuff in the show notes so everyone can can go and find all that stuff. So at the end of the episode, I like to play a piece of music, usually by the artist or somebody that they want to give a shout out to. So do you have anyone you'd like to uh, play? Uh, yeah. So I want to play my friend Madeline Grant, and the song is called Reasons. She is a Detroit vocalist who just recently moved to L.A., Mm-hmm. And she's done some stuff with Scary Pockets, and she was on an Odessa track. But what I'm going to play is one of her one of uh, her original songs. It's produced by Tyler Duncan, and I just think it's a really fun track. It gets me moving. It makes me happy. All right, fantastic. We'll play that. All right. So this has been a fantastic episode and, and chat. I really appreciate you taking the time, and hopefully. Uh, you know, we can come back and do a, a round two and dig into more fun tax stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. I'm here. Great. So thank you. Continued success and talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform as this really helps get the word out about the podcast so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Madeline Grant with Reasons. Just wanna get out of here